down on your phone. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, take it. It's yours. It's a gift from us. We'd love to have you have God's Word. But we're gonna, we've been going as a church through the Gospel of Luke, um, which is the Luke, Gospels are just um, the, the story about the life of Jesus. And today in the Gospel of Luke, as we're going through it, we come to chapter 9 of Luke. And I hope as we've been doing this week after week, you've been noticing something. That the main thing that Dr. Luke, and Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor who wrote this, the main thing that Dr. Luke is trying to help us understand in the book of Luke is who Jesus really is. That's his main intention. And if you've been reading it, we've been saying, you know, every week you can know what we're going to preach on, read the, just read that chapter coming up. You're kind of saying, you know, he just keeps kind of saying the same thing, that he's talking about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That he doesn't have a lot to say about you and me. And that's, that's hard for us sometimes. We want to read something and go, well, what's it mean to me? Um, but he doesn't say about a lot about how we're supposed to live. Guys like the Apostle Paul do that. Hey, this is how the Christian life is worked out. But he doesn't have to, a lot to say about you and me. He doesn't have a lot to say about how we should live our lives and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Rather, he just keeps pounding on the same nail, explaining in different ways who Jesus is and what that means for him to be the Messiah, the promised deliverer sent from God. We're going to talk about that today. And what it means that he is, in fact, God himself. And he just keeps coming at this over and over. So again, in chapter 9, we find that Luke, writing, he's writing to help us better, better understand who Jesus is. So let's just kind of walk through chapter 9 and see what he says to us today. Because I, I think we're going to find at the end of this chapter and at the end of our sermon today that something he has to say today is incredibly important for us, especially in our day and age. And I'm actually going to kind of challenge our thinking a little bit at the end and just share some things I've been learning with some younger people and just get us to think about something and how relevant this is to us today. So we find in Luke, let's kind of look starting at verses 6 through 9, we find in the beginning of, of Luke uh, chapter 9 that in these sections 6 through 9, Jesus is going around doing what he's been doing. He's continuing to heal. He's continuing to preach. And as he does that, he gets the attention of somebody uh, who's a man of power, King Herod. And let's remember who Herod is. Herod knows what's going on, and let's remember who this guy is. Herod is the one who's responsible for killing somebody. Many people, but who's Herod responsible? And a couple chapters ago we read, Herod had somebody's head chopped off. Who was that? John the Baptist. So John uh, did something that Herod didn't like. He questioned his moral life, and so John put him in prison, and through a series of events, John the Baptist gets his head chopped off. And now Herod's been hearing about Jesus and he's questioning what in the world is going on. And Herod wants to know, who is this? Who is Jesus? Is this John? Is he raised from the dead? What's going on here? So look at starting in verse 6 with me. It says, departing, they began, he's talking about Jesus and his disciples. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that, that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, Elijah's an Old Testament prophet, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself have had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Look what he says there. Who is this man about whom I've heard such things. Who is this man that I'm hearing about? Who is 
Jesus. That's what Herod wanted to know. And I would contend this. I would contend that that is probably the most important question any person on planet Earth have ever asked in all the ages. The most important question. Who is Jesus? And I wonder if we've really asked ourselves that question. Who is Jesus? Or we just kind of make up our own idea who Jesus is, but have we really said, who does God say Jesus is? Who does, does the scriptures reveal Jesus to be? Who is Jesus? And that's what Luke is trying to do. In the rest of this whole chapter, Luke aims to answer that question that Herod raised, who is Jesus? And we'll show you, that's what chapter 9 is, is designed to help us understand. So let's move on. Luke begins his answer by Jesus asking a question. Turn to your, your Bible to verse 18. Look at verse 18. Look what happens here. And it says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, that's Jesus, he's alone praying, and the disciples were with him, he questioned them saying, Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked this question. Who do people say that I am? And look, he immediately, he gets an answer in verse 19. And they answered and said, this is what people think, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So the people like Herod are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he the resurrected John the Baptist? Is he one of the prophets of old? Who is Jesus? But then Jesus goes on, in order to answer his question, he asks another question of the 12. And look at verse 20 here. He says this, but who do you say that I am? And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And look what Peter. And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gives the answer. And he says, you are the Christ of God. Peter is speaking for the 12. Jesus asks the 12, who do you think they are? And he says, you know what? Jesus isn't John. He isn't Elijah. That he is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ. You know what that means? The Christ is a Hebrew word. It comes from a Hebrew word, and it means the anointed one. And you know what sometimes people think, and I don't laugh if people think this, but they would think that Christ is Jesus' last name. He's Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Larson. He's not Jesus Christ. His last name wasn't Christ. There wasn't Mary Christ and, and um, you know, um, Joseph Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the one, as the Messiah, he's the Christ, the anointed one, He is the one that God had promised through the prophets who would come as the anointed one of God and set people free. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one. It all means the same thing. And Peter, speaking for the 12, shows that he understands who Jesus is. He says, but that Herod doesn't get it. Who who is he? The people don't get it. They don't know who he is. Jesus looks at the 12 and says, who am I? And he says the right answer. You are the Christ. You are Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. But I want you to get something here. But Luke, I believe, wants to make a point here, and it's this. Although Peter gets it, he gave the right answer right there, he doesn't really get it. And I think this is true for a lot of us. He gets it, but he doesn't really get it. He can say the right word. He can answer a Sunday school question. He says he knows it, but he doesn't really know it. And that's what chapter 9 is trying to unpack here. So in verse 22, Jesus tells them something that just does not compute with any of them. He just answered the question, who are you? You are the Christ. Right answer. But you don't really know what that means. Look at verse 22. So so Jesus says something that to them makes no sense. Saying this, Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, about Jesus, must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, is going to be rejected, not received. He's going to be killed, not exalted. And he's going to be resurrected on the third day. Jesus was saying to to them, this is what it means for me to be the anointed one, to be Jesus the Christ. This is what it means for me to be the Messiah. This is my future. This is who I am. Who I am is the God who's going to die, the servant who's going to suffer. And then Jesus does something that really blows their mind to help them understand who he really is and what he's doing. He takes them, after saying that, he takes them up onto a mountain to pray and something happens. Look with me starting in verse 28. Let's read all the way down to verse 36. It says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the apprentices, the, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had, had um, been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said, Jesus, to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and, beca- and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they, were, as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. What was going on in that mountain? Jesus was revealing who he really is, that he is the Son of God, that Peter, James, and John got to see something that no other person in human history has ever been able to see. They got to see Jesus where his godness outshined his humanness. Remember, Jesus is, is, is this incredible thing that we can't get our minds around. He is 100% God and 100% man. And in this moment on the mountain, they've always known him as a man. But now his godness outshines his humanness. And they had a glimpse into the eternal glory of Jesus. They had a glimpse into who Jesus has always been through all of eternity, eternity as a member of the Trinity. As, one, as a member of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they got a picture, they got to see what Jesus really was. And, and, and Peter, James, and John saw, John saw Jesus as God, as God. And all their doubts were gone. Jesus is transfigured before them, and they see him talking to Moses and Elijah, two pillars of the faith from the Old Testament. And they are talking to Jesus about his next steps. What's going to happen in his life next? That he's going to go to Jerusalem. And it says, they're talking about how his departure, that he's going to die. He's going to suffer on the cross. He's going to die, but he's going to be resurrected and he's going to return to his former glory. And what did Peter do? What's Peter do on that mountaintop? He freaked out. I love Peter. Because Peter did exactly what I think I would have done in the exact same situation. He would have said the wrong thing at the wrong time 
because he had no idea what else to do. He would have just shot something out, engaged mouth before engaging brain, and he would have said something. He goes, hey, I know what. Let's build three tabernacles or three little shelters for one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We don't know why he said that. Maybe he thought that Jesus was ushering in his kingdom because they remember, they're thinking as Messiah, he's just coming to establish political control and create uh, the, the, the Jewish domination politically. That's what he thinks is going to happen. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to be. So maybe he thinks he's ushering in his kingdom and this, listen, maybe the mountaintop's going to be the headquarters. No one knows for sure why he says it, but he says something, and I love Luke. Luke's not only a doctor, Luke had good bedside manner. Because look what he did, he makes an excuse for him. You see what he did there? Look what he says there. After, after, after Peter just blurts this out, he says he said it, not really realizing what he was saying. He's like, he didn't engage his brain, he just said something. But what happens after he does that? God speaks. God the Father basically says, hey Peter, be quiet and listen. Look at verse 34 and 35. While he was saying this, a cloud formed began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Can you imagine what they experienced? They see Jesus in his eternal glory, radiating the reality of him as part of the Godhead. They see Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for hundreds of years, they're fully alive, talking to Jesus, and they experience the Shekinah glory of God. That's a term that's used for it in Scripture. The best we have, the Shekinah, or the weighted glory of God. It's the cloud of the presence of God, and it's the way God has represented himself from the beginning of time with man. When God shows his reality to man, it's the same cloud of the presence of God that filled the tabernacle that Moses, that God led Moses to build, to, to build when they built the tabernacle and the, and the cloud of glory filled the tabernacle. It's the same cloud that led Israel by day. Remember I talked about when they left Egypt? There was a cloud that, that led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. night that was a Shekinah glory of God. It's the same cloud that when Solomon was instructed to build the, ta- the temple of God in Jerusalem. And it says they couldn't minister because the cloud of God, the Shekinah presence of God, filled that temple on the day that it was dedicated. They knew that. Now here they are encompassed in the cloud of God's presence. And God speaks to them, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now you would have to believe that now they must understand who Jesus is and what his mission is. They just heard Moses and Elijah talking about what his future was. Moses and Elijah got it. They said, you know what? You're going to Jerusalem, and it's your time for your departure. Jesus had just clearly explained to them, we looked at it in verse 22, this is what must happen. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. You'd think they'd get it. But still, they didn't get it. And you may ask, say, well, Pastor Mark, why do you say they didn't get it? It's because of something else that Luke includes later, a little later here in chapter 9. After this mountaintop experience, this Mount of Transfiguration experience, Jesus comes off the mountain and they encounter something right away. They encounter a, a, a man with a son and the son has been possessed by a, by a demon. And the, 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 the disciples that have been left behind, not the three that went on the mountain, have been trying to cast the demon out and they can't cast the demon out of the boy. And Jesus comes down and he, he sets the boy free. 
from the demon. And let's see what Luke says happened right after that event. Look at starting in verse 43, 43 and 44. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So they're amazed that, that Jesus comes down and sets this boy free. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. They were amazed at the greatness of God. They were marveling at who Jesus was and what he was doing. And while they're all amazed, Jesus looks at them and he says, Would you let this sink into your ears what's going to happen? I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. You know, can you hear the, I believe, the tone in his voice? Let this sink into your ears. Listen to me. You're not understanding. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Jesus gets it, but they don't get it. And look at the commentary we just read in Luke about, that Luke gives in verse 45. He says, listen, not only did I get it, they couldn't understand it, they couldn't perceive it, and they were even afraid to ask about it. Now, why is this important for us? Why is it important to, to say, well, they didn't get it, and we need to get it? Because we need to understand something. Humanity needs a Savior who did die and did rise again. They did not get what they needed. They did not get what God was trying to accomplish through Jesus the Christ. But we need to understand that we do need a Savior who is the Christ, who did die and did rise again. We need to understand that, that anything less would leave us lost in our sins. They didn't understand that. They just thought they, were getting, they needed a political leader. They needed somebody to, to set them free from oppression. See, we have a fuller revelation than they did. We have been told that, that we need something much more than some, simply somebody to set us free physically. We humans need a Savior that can set us free from the curse of sin and death. And I'm not so sure we believe this. I'm going to say it this way. Believe this anymore. I think maybe every generation up to our generation right now understood it. But I'm not sure we believe this anymore. Because this is what I, I think is very true about the culture we live in today. And I, I don't know if I'm going to do a good job of explaining my way I see it. But I see it this way. The culture today is the kind of the I'm alright, you're alright culture. It's a culture that says, don't judge me. I don't, it doesn't matter what you think. I will do what's right in my own eyes. So nothing is taboo anymore. Nothing is off limits anymore. But the reality of, the reality of humanity is that humanity without Christ is not all right. That all people need, all people, every person ever born needs a Savior Jesus, who died in their place 
to pay for their sins and rose again to conquer the curse of death and sin and to give them the gift of eternal life. Every person ever born needs that. And I'm not so sure that, that in our culture today that we really are that much different than Peter, James, and John on the mountain that day. They said, I understand, he's Jesus the Christ. You are the anointed one. But what they thought that meant and what it meant was something totally different. Sure, we say Jesus is the Son of God and we say, that's really cool. But we don't get, as a, as a culture, we do not get that we need him to be a Savior who dies in our place because all humanity is desperately lost in sin and Scripture says there's nothing we can do about it ourselves. That Jesus died in our place. He broke the curse of sin and death by dying and rising from the dead and that's the Savior that we need. We don't need some nice, fun, make my life easy version of Jesus. That's not what we need. We don't need that, that a nice, um, how do I even say it, defanged version of Jesus where he has, no, he has no, no power, he has no real purpose. He's not just an example to follow. He's not just a moral teacher. And I'm not sure we understand that anymore. We need a Savior that deals a death blow to the power of sin in our lives. And that's what Luke is saying. He's trying to say, listen, that's who Jesus is. That's what Luke is saying with the perspective that they didn't have at that moment. That he, he saw that Jesus died. And then he saw that Jesus rose again. And then bingo, he got it. And that's what he's trying to say. And I really believe that this is something that we need to be reminded of in our time. Because a lot of times I think people like their version of Jesus. But often that version has little to do with needing their sin problem and our sin problem dealt with. And it's not that anybody's judging anybody and saying, hey, oh, you rank sinner. It says, no, as humanity, we're lost. And we need our sin problem dealt with. Church, the reality of Scripture is that Mankind is lost without, a, well, lost without God and needs a Savior. I was thinking about this the other morning as I was, as I was praying through my, my morning. I pray through a morning liturgy from the Common Book of Prayer. The Common Book of Prayer was written over 600 years ago, and, and some of the prayers are 1,800 years old. And I, and I use it as a, as a model, and I was, I was praying. And, and as I was praying through this morning liturgy, um, in that, you're praying prayers and scriptures um, that the church has prayed for centuries. And a little aside, I'm going to, in the near future, Suzanne and I are going to do some classes on, on how, if you want to use that tool, how you could use that tool. And in my morning time from the common book of prayer, I, there's two prayers that, that are ancient prayers. They're 600 years old that, that church people have been praying, Christians have been praying for literally 600 years, these prayers. And they're dealing with my ongoing need for forgiveness. Doesn't mean I lose my forgiveness or that I lose my relationship with God, but that I live in a broken world and, and I have to, that sin is an issue and I need forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness in my life. And so church history has understood that part of our time with God every day is, is dealing with the sin problem. And it struck me as I was reading these ancient prayers and praying them that I don't think most, a lot of times in our culture today, that people would even think that they need forgiveness anymore. 
that many believe there's no such thing as sin anymore. That there's no such thing as objective truth anymore. There's nothing saying that this is right and that is wrong because everybody can just do what's right in their eyes and they say, listen, I'll just do it. You have no reason. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. Who are you to tell me? Well, I'm not anybody to tell anybody. But God is the one who tells us. God's the one who tells us. And he gave us, he gave us his, his book with that view that really there's, that really, I don't really need that a savior. I'm not really, I don't really, I'm not really done anything wrong. Then I don't need a savior who died and broke the power of sin in my life. Then I don't understand that I need a savior. And I was thinking this and it just, it just hit me. Matter of fact, I walked out of my office and I said, to, I made some comment to Mitch. I said, I know the point, <laughs> you know, because I was wrestling through this chapter and these poor guys have to live. I, I process everything out loud. So I just walk out and talk out in the hall when they're sitting in their offices and they have to listen to me. I do. I just talk out in the middle of the hall to, so that I can know they can all hear me. And I'm like, this is it. And I thought, not, and I'm, using, I'm not trying to pick on people based on age at all because it's an endemic thing in our whole culture. But I was thinking this, how many of our young people even believe in sin anymore? And so this week I had this incredible opportunity. I, um, I, I met with a young man uh, earlier this week that I meet with, he doesn't go to our church, he's a, he's a wonderful young man. He's, he's very smart and he loves the Lord and he's trying to figure out his trajectory in life. And we were talking about stuff and I went and I got my common book of prayer out and I read two prayers for him, for, from him, for him. And I said, do you believe that people your age believe there's a need to even think like this? It's asking for God to forgive them. And as we talked, he said, no, I don't think they do. And so then yesterday, Friday and Saturday, I had to teach down in Milwaukee. I teach a thing called DSOM, District School of Ministry. And um, it's for people coming up to get credentials in the Assemblies of God. And so I had 15 students Friday and Saturday. And it, it fit what they were doing. And I, I got out the prayers from the common book of prayer. <laughs> and there's a bunch of them that are young. And I said, help me understand something. And I read the book, the prayers from the common book of prayer. And I said, do, do you and people your age think this way anymore? And you could see, because they're from really good churches, and they all kind of went like, well, of course. And then they said, yeah, but not really. And I thought, my God, what have we done? Have we, in our view of trying to make everybody just feel good, parenting styles of, what well, our neighbor is a counselor. Our neighbor is a, is a, a, a counselor at a, at a Catholic high school. And we asked him the other day. We were over sitting in our backyard, and I said, has, has your job changed in 30 years? He's like, oh, my goodness. And he gave us a term that we didn't even know, and then we read something. We just read it. She forwarded me an article yesterday that used a new term called lawnmower parents. I'd never heard of lawnmower parents. He goes, it's gone way beyond helicopter parents. It's called lawnmower parents. And he says the destruction it's doing, he's a counselor. The destruction it's doing in, in kids is just unbelievable how it's destroying kids. The lawnmower parent is one who literally mows down every, anything that could cause any adversity in their child's life. If they can't make friends, take them somewhere else. If they, can't, they don't fit in, make sure they fit in. You know, just mow down any conflict. Teachers give a good grade, go to bat for your kid. Mow down any conflict in their life. But part of that is saying, telling little Johnny and little Sally every day, oh, you're just wonderful and you're precious. Well, we are wonderful and we're precious in the sight of God, but does not mean 
We're not born with a sin nature that's corrupt. And we need a savior. And talking to these, you know, to, to, to my neighbor who's a counselor and said, he goes, I can't even tell you do my job anymore. He's like, how many years till I retire? He's like, it's nuts. He's one more parents are crazy. He said they have no boundaries. They call me day and night. The kid gets a bad grade. They're, they're, they're fighting the teacher. They're suing. They're coming to attorneys to parent-teacher conferences, you know, to try to sue the school. And he goes, this is norm now. And thinking about that, it just, it just hit me when I was going through this section. Have we come to a place in our Western culture We've raised a generation who don't honestly even believe that they need a savior because there's no absolutes anymore. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong. You can't tell anybody anymore in this culture, guess what, that's just wrong. And you can fill in the blank of what those things could be. You know, that's just wrong. It's just against the moral, the moral fiber, the moral um, gift that God tried to give us, a gift of morality to show, give us his word and say, here's, here's the way humanity functions. And in asking these young people, these 20-somethings over the last couple days, do you believe you and your friends would pray a prayer like this and then talk about it because that would mean that you don't really think that you need a Savior because you've been raised in such a way that everything's been mowed down in your life and, and everything's been, you've just been constantly told everything's, you're good and, and we are precious in the sight of God. We are sinners, but we're first beloved sinners. God beloves us but we can't ever take away the fact that every person must be born again. Every person. Precious little Callie isn't so precious sometimes. And Levi, they need a savior. They weren't born righteous. Callie knows mine. Mine. Pretty well, right? She's a typical little kid. And I'm just thinking, you know, how wise Luke is to 2,000 years ago to write this in such a way that he's saying, listen, you guys say you know who Jesus is. You can say the right word. He's this person. But he's, at, he's doing miracles. He's doing these things. And, and Jesus is going, would you please let these words sink into your ears? I need to die. Because they couldn't make any sense to them. I need to die. I need to die because I need to die in your place because you are guilty and you can't fix it yourself and I'm going, to, I'm going to die for you and with you. And if I die in your place, I'll pay the price. And then when you come to receive me as your Savior and Lord, then I've paid the price and now you're in me and now my righteousness becomes your righteousness and now I, you're forgiven because I offered you forgiveness and now you can live righteously and holy but you can't do it without having come to a place where you need a Savior. In order to need a Savior, you need to understand that you needed a Savior. And my thought over these last couple, this last couple of days in dealing with these 20-somethings is they're saying, well, no, we live in a society that, that we don't even believe we need a Savior because I'm all right and you're all right and who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Well, I'm not, but God is. And the things of right and wrong is not so we do a list of things and just try to obey a bunch of laws. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a way of us seeing that we need a Savior. That there's things inherent in us in humanity that, that are not good and that need to be redeemed. And Jesus came to do that. Luke's just making the point here that we need a Savior 
who died for our sins. They couldn't get it there. He's making the point that Luke's trying to make that we need a Savior who died for mankind and anything less is not a Savior. It's not who Jesus is. And we're going to end today by praying two prayers together. Two ancient prayers. Well, ancient, 600 years old, 500 and some years old from the Common Book of Prayer, which is, the Common Book of Prayer was written from the, the um, English side of the Reformation. And we think of the German side um, because of Martin Luther, but this was the same time frame. And it was given as a gift to the, to the church. And, and I know we're not used to praying written prayers around here. But I find them incredibly empowering. Matter of fact, it was revolutionary, revelationary maybe to me is the right word, as I read these and then said, oh my goodness, what does it say about Luke 9? And so we're going we're gonna to pray these together. We're going to pray this one, and then we're going to say amen, we're going to pray the next one. Now here's the deal. You don't have to pray this prayer. And I'll say, saying, saying words isn't magical. I think it shows us something that the church has always understood. So let's pray these together. Ready? We'll read it aloud together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in, in, each, in our life. Amen. These are two prayers that are written in the beginning of the morning liturgy. They're how you start off your day. Isn't that interesting? For, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the way the church thought they ought to start off. Matter of fact, Pastor Pete is here, and it kind of seemed that Pastor Pete's here somewhere. They're all pointing. I don't know where he went. Okay, so um, it kind of sounds like week one of the Ignatian um, three-day silent prayer retreat, the four weeks of Ignatian spirituality, doesn't it? Dealing with your sin issue first. It's just what historical Christianity has understood, that we need a Savior. And you see how the guys, and, they, and it wasn't their fault, it hadn't been revealed to them yet, but it has been revealed to us. How we can say, yeah, we need a Savior, but not really understand that that means that we need a Savior because we're desperate without Him. Let's stand together this morning. I just want to close in prayer. And I was wrestling around saying, God, how in the world do I close this service? And I think all I want to do is I want to close with a prayer, a prayer. And then if you want to spend some time just talking to the Lord about understanding who He is, I invite you to do that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, um, we do know that we need you. Lord, you're never condemning. And Lord, if there's any way that in trying to present this material, I came across as condemning. Lord, please help that just be washed away. Because you're never condemning. 
but you're honest. And you have this incredible plan in place. And you did it from the, your, the Bible says, from the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. That you understood exactly the trajectory that mankind would go. That we'd, that we'd walk our own way instead of your way. And that, Lord, people like us would be born into a system so far removed from those early days that we wouldn't even know um, maybe what part, what part we play in it. But that you give us light through your word to see reality. And the reality is that you love us so passionately that you died for us. That you came. And that wasn't just some, some nice Valentine's Day gift. You did it because humanity is lost without you. And that we need a Savior who died and rose again. Because you died in our place. And you rose again to give us spiritual life, to join us with you now in your life. You're alive and we're alive in you. So God, thank you for that great gift. And I know that, Lord, so many of us have come to terms with that. and We've, we've welcomed you in and we've, we've said yes to you, Jesus. We need you. As we're here this morning, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We're all just kind of being reverent and being aware of the presence of God. Maybe you're here today and you, maybe some new kind of insights come to your mind today, your heart today. And you recognize that you need a Savior. Not one that you made up in your own mind. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm not talking about religion. None of that. I'm talking about the reality that God himself died in your place. And he asks you to come to him and to give your life over to him. And to trust in him and to follow him as your Lord and your Savior. And that maybe you're here today and you've never really done that. But something inside of you is saying, this is for me. I would contend that that something is the Holy Spirit of God. That the Holy Spirit loves you so much that he's saying, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Come and receive forgiveness of your sins. Be washed. Be clean. Start a brand new life with Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. That's the Spirit of God. And so in this environment right now, again, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's give the neighbor next to you privacy. If you say, Pastor Mark, today I want to respond. I want to say yes to Jesus. I don't exactly even know what that means fully, but I know that I need a Savior and I need to be forgiven deep inside. I need to be made brand new. I need spiritual life in me. But right now there's just, just there's not the light switch is not turned on spiritually and but I need Jesus I'm going to ask you to do something I promise you I won't embarrass you I won't call you out I won't single you out but I want to I want you to have an action that says yes to Jesus if you say today is the day I want to ask Christ into my life I want you to raise up your hand and when I see your hand up okay I'm going to ask you to put it down you can put them down who else 
over on my left side here. Okay? Okay? Anybody else? Hands across this room. I want us to, we're going to all pray together. You can put your hands down. We're going to all pray together this morning. The whole church family. And I'm going to invite everybody to pray this prayer out loud. There's nothing magic. I'm just making, I'm making up the words as we go. But we're just going to, we're going to say yes to Jesus. So if you raise your hand this morning, just pray along with all of us today and mean it from your heart best you can. Because God is here. So pray, dear Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. So today, I ask you, come into my life and make me brand new. I need to be forgiven. And I ask you to forgive me. So on this day, I welcome your forgiveness into my life. And I thank you that in an instant, you make me brand new. And so, Lord, from this moment forward, I want to live my life with you. Show me what that means. Help me along the way. I thank you. prayed that prayer this morning the Bible says this the Bible actually says this it says there's a party going on in heaven if you did that it says there's more celebrating in heaven over one person who comes to the Lord than 99 who are already there it says the angels rejoice over it and so I would challenge you in this way if you said yes to Jesus right now I have no idea your church backgrounds if you did that maybe you know a lot maybe you know very little um, that you no, you do two things. Number one, you, you tell somebody before the sun goes down tonight that you said yes to Jesus. Because it kind of cements it in. And the second thing you do is if you don't have a church that can help you grow and develop, you find one. You find one that, that understands the Bible and teaches you the scriptures. You're welcome to join us here, but maybe you're from somewhere else. Where else? You find a good church that teaches the scriptures and where people come around you and help you grow and develop and I promise you this this day will be life changing for you it starts off the whole rest of your life the Bible says it like this it says when you say yes to Jesus it's like being born again it's like becoming a brand new baby and so so that you, you need you're gonna you start brand new with, and you're fresh and you start off and, and you know what when you're a little baby you need help so let the church world help you amen God is good, isn't he? So glad you all joined us for church today. I'm going to pray just a prayer of blessing over us as we conclude. Then if, if you would like prayer, um, you'd like to talk, I'll be up here. Some others will be up here to join you. Um, then when you feel dismissed by the Lord, just go and have a wonderful day in Jesus. And know that, that God loves you so much, he gave his life for you. Amen? So let me pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a wonderful day walking in the freedom and the joy that comes from knowing 
that we have a Savior who died for us.